This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by our new Full Focus Kids and Full Focus Students Planners. Learn how you can equip your kids for a successful future at fullfocusplanner.com. Hi, I'm Michael Hyatt. And I'm Megan Hyatt Miller. And this is Lead to Win, our weekly podcast to help you win at work and succeed at life. And today we're going to show you how to create a culture of collaboration. This is not so easy. In fact, sometimes it feels easier to create a dysfunctional culture than a functional one, right? I mean, everybody has their own horror story of a negative culture, whether it was gossipy teammates in an atmosphere of suspicion or a top-down authoritarian management style or departments or teams working in silos, lots of blame and mistrust. And the worst part is that nothing gets done. I mean, when you have a dysfunctional culture, it's so much sideways energy and it really keeps you from doing the things that matter the most. And it's so tough to break the habit once you've kind of gone down that rabbit hole. But today we're going to show you how to change all that. You can help to create a highly collaborative culture in your workplace, and we're going to show you exactly how to do that. But first, we got to bring on Larry. Hey, Larry. Hey, Larry. Hey, guys. How are you? Great. Great to hear from you. Yeah, I'm I'm great, too. Still up up here working remotely, working from home. (laughs) Not exactly a new experience for Michael Hyatt Company, but good to see you guys. Okay, so we're talking about how to create a collaborative culture, and I can I just brag on you guys for a second? Um, sure. You have really hit a home run on that in creating this company. I think some people may have heard that Michael Hyatt Company has made the Inc. 5000 list of America's fastest growing private companies for three years running, grown by over 157%. And uh, the team is a huge part of the reason I think it's the best team I've ever been on. And this year, 2020, we were named one of Inc.'s best places to work with not quite 100% full engagement, but uh, 96.88% of employees (laughs) saying they are fully engaged. And that compares to 30% for the average company. This is just a fun place to work. And It's the most collaborative environment I've ever been a part of. So I think the big question is, how did you do that? Well, the key word is intentionality. None of it happened by accident. You know, we designed it. So I've said before many times in my book, Living Forward, I think Daniel Harkavy and I first uh, set up this framework of there are two approaches to life, both individually and organizationally. Either you drift into the future or you design the future. And drift is that posture of being passive, of blaming others, of feeling feeling helpless and just, you know, drifting, coasting, kind of moving through life without really any intention. But design is being proactive, taking ownership, having agency. And we're going to get into specific steps in a minute, but the foundation of creating culture is to be intentional. It's not something that happens by accident. You don't drift into it. You've got to create it. 
Yeah, I think that's a really important point, Dad. You know, most often when we hear clients tell us that they have a productivity problem in their organization or we hear from you guys as listeners, it's really a cultural problem. And you often say, Dad, that culture is the unseen force that drives operating results. And that's kind of a paradigm shift, I think, for most of us. That's not the way that we kind of grew up in business, but it's really, really true. And the reason is because humans are culture-creating creatures, You know, we live inside systems of thought and belief and behavior, and your workplace has a culture. Whether you know it or not, it does. And as a leader, you are the key to setting that culture. Larry Bossidy said that culture is nothing more and nothing less than the behavior of its leaders. If you want to change an organization's culture, you have to change the behavior of its leaders. And, you know, that requires sometimes a long, hard look in the mirror because sometimes we're the problem that we have to fix. Absolutely. I mean, that's kind of good news, bad news, right? Right. So the good news is you can change it. All you have to do is change your behavior. And the bad news is sometimes that's the most difficult uh, behavior of all the change is your own. Right. For you guys listening, you can start by describing your current culture. Now, for most of it, it's, it's invisible. You know, we don't pay attention to it. It's just kind of like fish to water. It's just the environment that we swim in. But begin by listing the attributes of your current culture that you don't like. Then list the attributes of a culture you would love, usually the direct opposite of that. So, for example, when I came to Thomas Nelson Publishers back in the late 90s, there were many things in the culture that I felt like were toxic, things that I didn't like. For example, I thought the the culture, and this was in the left-hand column of my own list, it was hierarchical, it was opaque, you know, there was there was a lack of transparency, we didn't know anything that was going on above us. It was very competitive to the point of dysfunctional, and there was a lot of gossip. And so I wrote down that list, and I said, what do I want to turn this into? How do I want to transform it? And I said, instead of hierarchical, I want it to be collegial. Instead of it being opaque, I want it to be transparent. Instead of it being competitive, and some competition is okay, but I wanted a collaborative environment. And instead of gossip, I wanted an environment of loyalty. So here's the point. As a leader, you can create a collaborative culture, but you've got to get clearer on what it is you're trying to create, what kind of culture you're trying to make. So today we're saying that you can create a culture of collaboration, and we have three steps to help you do that. So let's get to step one, which is embrace your unique working style. One of the things I like to do with our business coaching clients is take them through an exercise where I have them draw the picture of a house with their dominant hand. So I'm right-handed, so I would draw it right-handed. So, I mean, most people are an artist. Some are better than others. But then I have them draw the picture, the same picture with their non-dominant hand and then describe the difference. And they usually say, oh my gosh, it was so frustrating. It was a lot slower. They weren't very good at it. They had to be super focused. You know, but many of us have unknowingly adopted a work style that just doesn't fit us. We're trying to draw or trying to operate from a style that's just not us. So when I grew up, my dad had been injured in the Korean War. It affected his life Uh, thereafter. He was only 17 when he enlisted in the Marines. He took some shrapnel to the head and he was in a coma for about six months. And then he thereafter for the rest of his life limped severely. So from childhood, all of us are looking for examples to follow. And our natural instinct is to find the people we respect, usually the grownups around us, and to follow in their footsteps. And in my case, quite literally, I started limping 
like my dad. And my mom called me aside one day when I was probably four or five years old, and she said, Michael, you don't need to limp. Your dad limps because he was hurt in the war, but look at all these other men, all these other men you look up to, they don't limp. You don't need to limp. So this is important because sometimes we're in an environment, our work environment, where we look up to people we respect and we just unconsciously adopt their style. But if it's not us, then it becomes very awkward. We're not going to show up as our best version of ourselves because we're trying to be someone else. So there's a big difference between influence and imitation. We can learn from all kinds of people. We can be influenced by their approach. But when we believe that we can't win as ourselves, and this is important, that we have to become like someone else in order to succeed, we've slipped into a very dangerous delusion. Any leadership style can be a strength if you're aware of it and if you use it intentionally. So now we want to tackle how you can stop trying to be the leader you think you should be and start appreciating and embracing the leader that you are. Well, I love this conversation because I think sometimes finding your leadership style can feel like kind of a black box, you know, that it's something you have to find and then you have to decode and it sort of holds all the secrets. But how do we access that? Fortunately, um, we have a practical tool that we have been using for a number of years inside Michael Hyde and Company that really, we didn't develop it, but um, it's something that we uh, learned about and have since implemented that really helps to give leaders insight into their own style. And also, this can be something that you can use with your team that would help them understand themselves better. So it's called the Colby A Index, K-O-L-B-E, and it measures the way that you instinctively approach your work. So if you think about it, there are really three functions to your brain. There's your cognitive function, so that's your intelligence, your affective function or your feelings, and your conative function, which is the way that you work. And this is the one we're the least familiar with. But the Colby A index measures how you go about a task. And believe it or not, there are actually four different ways that people initiate work, and that's what the Colby measures. So when you take the Colby A index, it's an assessment that you take online. It probably takes, you know, 15, maybe 20 minutes, depending on how, you know, thoughtful and deliberative you are. Um, what you're going to get back is a report, and it's going to give you four numbers. You're going to have kind of a score in each one of these four areas, fact finder, follow through, uh, quick start, and implementer. And that's going to tell you how you initiate work and, and kind of interpret when those are all put together, how you engage with your work and how other people can successfully engage with you. For example, my Colby score is a 7382. That means that my highest or my longest number, they would say, is my quick start. So I'm an eight quick start. That's how I initiate. Um, and then I'm a seven fact finder. So this, the first number is your fact finder, and that's a seven. So I like to take action, but I also like information, especially to back up the action that I take. Um, so that's unique to me. Uh, but then my other two numbers, my follow through and my implementer are very low. And that means that I don't have a lot of energy for follow through. I don't have a lot of energy for planning or details or logistics. Um, those are That's really draining to me. And I don't really want to do a lot of hands-on work. Now, it's important to remember None of these numbers, whether they're they're short or long, as Colby would say, are bad or good. I mean, there's there's no right score. There's no uh, best way to initiate work. It's totally just descriptive of who you are. There's no value attached to it, except if you were to um, have a score that's unsuited for the kind of work that you're doing. For example, if my primary job was to plan and do um, kind of uh, detail-oriented work, it would be or repetitive work, it would be very draining for me, and I would probably 
potentially not be very successful. So I think that's really what you're looking for is, is how does the fit line up between the kind of work you're doing every day and what energy is required of that work and what you're naturally predisposed to do based on your Colby score. Okay, so you can initiate work in one of four ways. The first is called Fact Finder, which deals with information. And this is someone who, before they initiate work, they really want to do their research. They really want to understand everything. They're probably uh, searching for things, articles online. They're reading books. They're talking to people. They really want to have as much information as possible so that they can take confident initiation of their work. So on Fact Finder, you know, my husband, Joel, is an initiating Fact Finder. So he engages the world through information first. He wants to have a lot of information. Lately, he's been doing a lot of personal writing. And every day, we get probably four to five books from Amazon. I mean, I'm like, when is it going to stop? You know, where when will you have enough information to start writing this project? And for him, he really wants to get all the information in front of him. And he literally has it spread out on a table and categorized. And it's at a certain point, he will have enough information where he's going to feel confident taking action on a new book project that he's going to be working on. Uh, But that's an example of how someone who is an initiating fact finder kind of exists in the world. Then there is another way of initiating work called follow through. And this deals with uh, the energy for perpetuating and maintaining existing systems. So, um, or another way we like to think of this is planning. People who are what Colby would say are long on follow through or initiating follow throughs are going to want to have a really thoughtful plan before they take action. So this is a person, if you're going on a road trip that has the whole trip mapped out, they know exactly where they're going to stay along the way, they know what restaurants are going to stop at. They know where the rest stops are. They know how long a tank of gas is going to last. They have a whole plan before they ever get started. And that's a really unique way of working and initiating work. So someone who initiates through follow through, I feel like these people um, are sort of unicorns in a way, and that's probably just the the kind of makeup of our company. Uh, But these people are really good at seeing all the steps that need to be accomplished as part of a plan. So uh, we'll get into this in a minute. But some people, you know, they can just see a little bit as they start to go down the road, and that's fine for them. But these people see all the steps. So for example, Michelle Kashat on our team, who is our chief training officer, um, she has a a long follow through. And so as we were developing our one-on-one coaching program for Business Accelerator, she f- was able to foresee things like we needed a coaching manual. We needed a coaching manual and all the things that it needed to include. It's like 80 pages long. It has, you know, instructions for every part of the process, standards. Uh, she thought through all of that. She thought through contracts. She thought through scheduling. I mean, she sees all the components of that where some of the rest of us on our executive team, we would just think it's great great, let's start a coaching program. And then how great it's going to be when it's all finished, but we don't really see the middle. If you are an initiating follow through, you have the ability to see the middle and everything it's going to take to accomplish a big goal, for example. Thank God for these kind of people, by the way. Oh my gosh. We'd be because if we didn't have them, them, you know, I would be getting us into all kinds of trouble. And so would you, Megan. I know every day. Not, not to, uh, not to make this confessional or whatever, but some of these follow through people will sit in meetings and hear the new products that are announced at Michael Hyatt Company and think, oh my gosh, <laughs> how are we going to make that? Right. <laughs> <That's> a, <laughs> yeah. It's true. 
because they see everything that has to be done. So it's good. So then on the total other end of the spectrum is a quick start. So you have a fact finder, you have a follow through, and then you have a quick start. So this is a person with a high tolerance for risk. It's kind of like they are ready, fire, aim. You know, they just want to take action right now. They'll figure it out along the way. They love to start things. They don't have a lot of energy for finishing things. This is your classic entrepreneurial type, you know, that uh, has a lot of vision and a lot of um, kind of bang at the beginning, but struggles to follow through on things. So dad, that's the two of us all day, every Guilty day, as charged. you know, <laughs> a million ideas, a million new businesses all the time. Um, and this is definitely, again, going to be kind of your most familiar uh, entrepreneurial type, but not all. Interestingly, when we look at our uh, clients in Business Accelerator, I would say probably the majority of them are initiating quick starts, but then we have quite a few people that are in these other categories. So it's just important to not uh, pigeonhole people or, you know, kind of stereotype because there are entrepreneurs and leaders in each of these uh, four uh, ways of initiating work. If you happen to be a high fact finder and or a high follow through, which I am, and you work with a quick start, here's what it's like. Uh, A few years ago, I got a dog and decided to build a fence around my backyard. And I asked my son-in-law to help me. And he was very excited about the project. This was on a Sunday afternoon. He was over for dinner and I mentioned it to him. And uh, so after we ate, he's walking over to the neighbor's house to borrow a post hole digger. And I'm like, (laughs) wait wait a minute, wait a minute. I have weeks of research to do here on exactly what type of fence to build, how deep to set the posts, whether to put them in concrete or just put them in the ground, the wire, all of that. And I'm going to rent a power auger to dig these post holes. I'm not doing it by hand, but he was ready to go. Build a fence. Yep. Let's start this afternoon. I get it. That sounds very familiar. Although I don't want to build fences. I've had my own version of that many times. Okay, and the last way of initiating work is someone who's called an implementer. And this person has a lot of energy for tangible, hands-on projects. So this is the kind of person who wants to physically touch something in order to kind of move it along and initiate work. So this would be someone who maybe is an artist, a designer, is um, a builder, is an engineer, someone who is physically engaging with the work that they're doing on a daily basis. And this is the the rarest type within Michael Hyde and company because so much of what we do is digital or you know non-tangible. Um, but it's a really interesting and important type. And so if you think about it, these all have a natural energy for certain ways of initiating work. You know, maybe you have a natural energy for research and information, or you have a natural energy for planning, or a natural energy for starting things and just getting up and going, or a natural energy for building and making things. These are four um, equally valuable, non-hierarchical ways of engaging the world. And you naturally have energy for one, maybe two, but not necessarily the others. Most people have, you know, one that's dominant and maybe a a secondary one and then a pretty distant third and fourth. Um, And the idea here is that when you are, uh, when your work matches your natural way of engaging work, you have a lot less stress, it's easier, it's more satisfying, um, and you feel more successful. I think there's really a huge relief in discovering this about yourself. Mm -hmm. Totally. Realizing that you felt like a square peg uh, all these years, but hey, it's just another way to do things. Well, I think one of the mistakes that leaders make is that they tend to think that whatever their style is, and particularly if they're successful, 
that that is the thing that made them successful. And if you want to be successful, you've got to be like them. No, actually not. You need to be like yourself. The more congruent you can be with your natural style, the more you can work within the framework of that, the more successful you're going to be. So if you're not a high, a high quick start, you're not going to be successful by following all my examples. I initiate work in a specific kind of way. If you're a high follow through, you need to follow that particular form of initiating. That's going to lead you to success, not, not imitating me. Hey, everybody. Mike Boyer here. If you're enjoying this episode on creating a culture of collaboration, I bet you've got a friend who would love it too. Let's share the love. Why not text a link to this show to an overwhelmed friend or coworker, or drop it into your favorite social media feed with the hashtag lead to win. They'll be glad you did it. And so will you. It'll be like a double win. See what I did there? Seriously, folks, thanks for sharing this podcast with your friends. Now back to the show. So step number one in creating a collaborative work culture is to embrace your unique working style. And step number two, not surprisingly, appreciate your teammates' unique working styles. This is important because the best, most innovative teams, the most engaged teams, the most productive teams are those with the most diversity. So we've got to start with the assumption that different is good. The thing you want to avoid at all costs is what Colby calls conative cloning, where you try to hire people that are just like you. That's a recipe for disaster. We kind of did it unconsciously initially, and thank God we came across the Colby assessment because it helped us avoid that as we went forward. But let me just give you an example. Gail and I are exact opposites when it comes to almost every kind of personality test that we've taken. Uh, Initially, opposites attract. So we're attracted to one another, probably unconsciously, because we realized that the other person offered what we lacked. But over time, opposites usually annoy. You know, we got on each other's last nerve because Gail thought and initiated work so so much differently than I did. For example, she's very high on fact finder, so she can never have too much information. I'm very high on quick start, so I'm ready to get started. So left to my own devices, I would end up being very impulsive, taking action before I had all the information, and that wasn't a good thing. Left to Gail's own devices, she would just procrastinate, never take action. So you can see how the friction would occur and why we would annoy each other. But eventually, opposites must learn to appreciate. So attract, annoy, they must learn to appreciate their differences. So thank God that I have Gail in my life. We've been married for 42 years. She makes me less impulsive because she insists on getting more information. On the other hand, I keep her from procrastinating because I'm ready to get into the game and take action as soon as we have enough information. So that's the way we work together. So you've got to ask yourself the question, how is the fact that this person is different? And this is important. How is the fact that this person is different a gift to me and to the team. How is the fact that they're different a gift to me and a gift to the team? 
Well, this is a really fun thing to do with your team and to start thinking about with your team. For example, you could bring to mind someone on your team who you really get along with, you just have natural affinity with, you love to work with, and then ask yourself this question. Is this primarily because we think alike? You know, Dad, I think you and I have a lot of fun together because it's just so easy. Like our brains work so similarly, our Colby scores are almost identical, that it makes it so easy uh, to communicate, to think of ideas together and all that. And, you know, probably our team is, you know, trembling a little bit when we come in together with an idea because it's like double trouble, <laughs> literally, you know. Um, however, to that point, we also have some of the same weaknesses and blind spots. You know, we we are not enough. The two of us are not enough together because we're so similar. We have, right. we, you know, we make our strengths stronger, but we also make our weaknesses worse. <laughs> um, you know, now I want you to think of somebody on your team who you find maybe frustrating to work with, or you've had some friction with, or just, you just feel like there's not a lot of natural affinity. I wonder if that could be partly because you just work differently. You know, maybe you want to take action and they always want to take a little bit more time to make a decision. Um, Or maybe you want to wait and they want to take action. You know, regardless, this could really be attributable to one of these four aspects of the Colby Index, the fact finder, the follow through, the quick start or implementer. How do you think maybe they initiate work? And it's you're not really trying to diagnose them per se, but it just can be a helpful lens to look through. And then ask yourself this question, how might they compliment you? You know, for example, my executive assistant, Jamie, is an initiating follow through. Her follow through number, I think, is a nine, which means that, you know, she has so much energy. Mine is a two. Hers is a nine. So I have like no energy for details. If I was keeping my own calendar, for example, I mean, I have a pretty complicated life with five kids and, you know, our whole company and all that. She can keep it all straight because she thinks through every contingency, every detail. She makes sure everything works together. If I were trying to do that, I would be horrible at it. It would be an utter and total disaster. Um, You know, similarly, uh, Courtney Baker, who's our chief marketing officer, she has, uh, she initiates as a quick start and as a follow through, which is really interesting. It's a little bit of like a, a one foot on the gas, one foot on the brake, as Colby says, kind of an experience. But what's cool about that in marketing, we run really complicated marketing promotions, many simultaneously. And, you know, there's a whole way that that has to work kind of on the back end. Courtney can see all that. She can see exactly how to make it work, how all the details fit together so that nothing runs into anything else and, and how to arrange it all so it works. And thank goodness, because I think someone without that follow through component wouldn't be able to keep the details straight. Well, I can tell you that it really is helpful to know this about your teammates, what their Colby is and how they initiate work. As an example, I was having a conversation last week with Danielle Rogers, who's been on the show. She's our HR director. And she asked me a question. And so I told her, and it took about 10 minutes uh, to give her all the information because she did ask, right? And I said, well, I'm sorry, I guess that got a little long. And she said, that's okay, Larry, I've read your Colby score, and I know never to expect a short answer from you. Ah, interesting. (laughs) Danielle does a great job, I think, of appreciating how everybody's different and necessary, you know, and she doesn't try... Uh, to kind of encourage or force people to adopt a way of being in the workplace that is unnatural to them. You know, what we try to do is really position people where they naturally have that energy so that uh, there's not a lot of friction. By the way, one pro tip, 
I just started doing this and I requested all of our team to begin doing this is to start using their Colby profile, those four numbers as a part of their display name in Zoom. So as mm -hmm. we're having our virtual meetings, we can see just kind of like a symphony conductor, which instruments we need to call up for which problem we're trying to solve, which kind of leads us Larry to the next point. Well, let's move on to step number three in creating a collaborative work culture, which is to hire people who are uniquely wired for their work and who balance out your team. Yeah, so let me go back to the symphony illustration. So if you were the conductor of a symphony and all, all you had was, I don't know how many people are in a symphony, let's say 100 people, and if everybody played woodwinds, you wouldn't have much music that you could play. You know, your, your versatility, your... Uh, repertoire would be very narrow. But on the other hand, if you've got a little bit of this and a little bit of that, you've got some strings, you've got some brass, you've got the woodwinds, you've got percussion, you've got all these different instruments, then you can make all kinds of music because you have all the instruments at your command. That's what you want inside of your company. You don't have to be good at everything. And that's the thing I want to say to you as a leader. You don't have to be good at everything. As it turns out, I'm only good at a few things, and that's fine because the secret is to build a team that complements one another. So the ideal mix, based on Colby's research, is to have 25% of your team who are long in each of the four areas, 50% that are mid-range, and these are kind of your interpreters that can interpret the long people to the short people, and then 25% who are short in a particular area. Now, that's more technical than probably want to get into. So we'll have a link in the show notes to Colby, and we are an affiliate, so we get paid a small commission if you engage with the company, but we've been using and recommending uh, Colby for years, but long before we were an affiliate. So how have you used this tool to create a more balanced workforce? Well, I love using this in the hiring process. I think when we started integrating this into our hiring process, our success of matching the right candidate to the right job description went through the roof. You know, it uh, it made our current employees more satisfied in their work and it made the new employees better suited to the work that we were going to be asking them to do. So we do a couple of things. First of all, we have our candidates for new positions take the assessment. So this index has been shown to uh, have no bias for race, gender, et cetera. So we begin by knowing what the candidate's strengths are. And normally we would send this out once we have, um, you know, reviewed resumes, we've kind of narrowed it down to maybe six to 10 candidates. We're not at our final candidates yet, um, but we feel like we, based on resumes and so forth, that we have a good idea that they would be qualified for the position. Now we want to know if they're a fit for the position. And the way that you know that is when you're creating a job description for a position, Colby has a separate assessment that you take called the Colby C, where you, as the hiring manager, take this assessment and basically um, are answering questions about what is going to be needed for that person to succeed in their new role. And so then they also have taken the assessment, the same one that you took, the Colby A, that's all about themselves. And Colby takes their personal results and the ideal results for the job, what's going to be required to succeed, and, and kind of runs those through an algorithm and tells you how what their score is, basically. So you get a letter score back, a grade, basically. And in our company, we try to never hire anybody that's not an A or better. I think Colby's official stance on that is they should be a B or better. Um, but we found that to be very, very helpful because then what you know is they have a natural energy for doing the work that you're going to be asking them to do. 
I tell you what, like I said, this has really changed our hiring process and our ability to be successful. However, every so often, we get a little full of ourselves, and we think that we are smarter than the assessment and that it's missed something and that we're going to kind of just go with our instincts. Um, and I can tell you without exception that that has proven to be a real problem. Um, I can think of an example of someone that we hired who I was just convinced was the right cultural fit, really appreciated her background and uh, kind of what she had done professionally and had been very impressed by that and her people skills, et cetera. And I thought, you know what? This assessment is just way off. I know I'm right on this. Well, it was a disaster. She was not able to produce any of the results that were required in her role. It was a marketing role. And unfortunately, um, you know, that relationship ended. It did not work out long term at all. Uh, it was just honestly an astounding failure that at the end of the day, you know, I'm responsible for because I decided that I could override the assessment. And I think this is one of the great things about using an objective measure like this in your hiring process is it keeps your own kind of feelings and assumptions from getting in the way of something more objective, like someone's way of initiating work. Well, and the reason that's so important is when you have a hiring fail, it is so expensive. Oh, so expensive. You know, just, just the recruiting process is expensive and then the onboarding process and the investment, the time lost, the opportunity cost, all of that, you know, in this particular case you were mentioning, this person was on board for about six months and it didn't work out. You know, we basically lost six months. We lost the investment. And then we had to start all over. Mm -hmm. It was like, you know, we had to start over from ground level zero, but now we're even more desperate to fill that position. Yeah, it was an expensive lesson. And, you know, I've kind of vowed to myself ever since then, don't ignore the test. You know, the results don't lie. It's very, very, very consistent. And we've had some amazing hires using this process. And, you know, so lesson learned. I think I need to put a disclaimer in here real quick, and that is Colby is one lens through which we look at our colleagues or look at potential colleagues. You know, we're also going to look at their experience. We're going to look Absolutely. at their education. We're going to look at their skills, their work history. You know, all that stuff's important. This is one lens, but it's a critically important lens, and it's the one that's missing for most organizations. You know, I think the secret sauce here, to use uh, an expression we like around here, is when you share these results with the team. So we all know what each other's Colby scores are. And so we know who we're dealing with and how they initiate work. And it does, to me, it does two things. First, you have a very high tolerance for people who are different from you because you understand why they're coming at a problem from a different angle. And two, it gives you incredible respect for your teammates mm -hmm. because you realize they've really been vetted and chosen carefully for the role and they bring a lot to the table. So it really ups the collaboration. Well, today we've learned that you can create a collaborative culture by taking three actions. One, embrace your own unique working style. Two, appreciate your teammates' unique working styles. And three, hire people who are uniquely wired for their work and who balance out your team. And when you do that, you're going to find you'll be in a highly collaborative environment and feel very confident of your team's ability to take on challenges. And they may actually start loving coming to work again. So final thoughts for our listeners today. 
Well, I think there's nothing like working in a highly collaborative team where everybody feels respected and appreciated and like they have a unique contribution to make. You know, this is the difference between, you've probably heard a lot of people talk about this, um, a strengths-based culture versus whatever the alternative to that is where you're constantly just trying to improve people's weaknesses. You know, like in my case, trying to help somebody become a better planner or better with details. You know, it's just, it's so much more rewarding to have a company that you can work in and that you're employees or your teammates can work in where everybody's working from a natural point of energy, a natural place of strength than trying to work so hard to get better at things you're not naturally good at. Um, that's not to you know discount any kind of leadership development, of course, but we're just talking about how you initiate work. So I love this tool so much, the Colby Index. I think it is a huge shortcut for leaders uh, to develop your people. It's a huge shortcut for yourself to know where you need to be spending your time and where you're going to be tempted to kind of waste your time, right? rather than leverage the strengths of others. So I really hope you'll check it out. Um, I think like us, once you discover it, it'll become one of your favorite tools. I'd like to give my final thought by quoting Dr. Seuss. He says, today you are you. That is truer than true. There is no one alive who is youer than you. And so to know that you can be you and still succeed is an awesome truth. You don't have to try to be somebody else. You don't have to imitate somebody else. All you have to do is to embrace who God's made you to be. And if you do that, you can be successful as a leader. Well, Michael and Megan, thanks for sharing this tool and this process. I know it's going to help a lot of companies to create just the kind of collaborative culture that you've been able to produce around here. So thank you. Thank you, Larry. Thanks, Megan. And thanks to all of you for joining us today. And we'll see you right here next week. Until then, lead to win. This episode of Lead to Win is brought to you by our new Full Focus Kids and Full Focus Students Planners. Learn how you can equip your kids for a successful future at fullfocusplanner.com.